Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to discuss murder, mayhem, and riverboats. Nice. So, yeah, in other words, we're here not to discuss discuss Mark Twain, but instead to discuss Agatha Christie's (laughs) Death on the Nile. We're going to discuss chapters 11 through 20. So basically the the murder section and the beginning of the investigation and the pearls getting thrown onto the table. That's where this section will end. Mrs. Bowers throws the pearls onto the table. Not pearls before swine. No, no. Pearls before a detective. (laughs) The detective. The detective. (laughs) So, Tim, you didn't get to be with us last time. But, you know, speaking of mysteries and so forth, there's no mystery as to where you were because you were in Aruba. Right. But if history shows us anything, it's that mysterious things happen Anything when you can are in, happen Aruba. in Aruba. Yes. So, so we need to know how was Aruba? Did any mysteries happen? Did you, did any strange occurrences befall you while you were on vacation in Aruba? No, no, it was, I started to say hapless, but that's not right. Like someone, someone <laughs> can be hapless. Without hap? What is hap? That's what I was just about to like explore that mystery. What is hap? <laughs> going to google okay, what is okay hap? do you know what we i bet we know no i bet we don't i was going to say hapless is that an abbreviation for happening so someone well, who it's is probably hapless, like a, a etymology hap is a root right happening yeah, yeah. happiness i don't know david hap, is looking it up haberdash, david is haberdashery no haberdashery haberdashery Haber, right two no, different haberdashery no it's, i'm sure it's hap, happer <laughs> No. <laughs> so hapless literally means what you'd expect it to mean without hap. Hap being another word for fortune or luck. Hap <laughs> derives from the old Norse word for good luck, a word that is also the source of our happen and happy. English has several words to describe those lacking good fortune, including ill-starred, ill-fated, unlucky, and luckless, a word formed in parallel to hapless by adding the suffix less. Um <laughs> Yes, uh, got that. Great. Uh, let's see here. So it sounds like I'm right, though, about haberdashery. 14th century. Haberdashery. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. 14th century. We're educated huh? people that read stuff. She, she, I didn't know. Heidi was hat. like shutting that one down. No. Tim. <laughs> I know. I know. She's just not having it. So, Tim, nothing befell you then? No. We stayed. Um, at, okay, I'm going to tell you one thing. And it wasn't like any great mystery or anything, but we stayed in this beautiful big Airbnb at kind of an elevated part of the island. Aruba is not big at all. Uh-huh. Like maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles top to toe. And on December 31st, we all had dinner on our kind of like outdoor elevated veranda. And we had been seeing people buy fireworks all day huge fireworks displays everybody's stopping in and getting fireworks so we knew there was going to be some fireworks oh my goodness we had no idea at eleven fifty nine, the fireworks started going off and literally there was not a foot on the horizon that was not exploding it was it looked like like um, what do they call it when the U.S. invaded Iraq? The whole shock and awe treatment. 
It's, mm. it, I'm not kidding. It really did look like that. It was incredible. It was incredible. But that was, I mean, that was the sum total of the haps. The, the haps. haps. Yeah, the haps on Aruba. It's the opposite of ill-starred. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Ah, that well was starred. nice. I would call it well-starred. Myriad stars. Mm-hmm. Um, there's got to be a segue here. I'm, I'm coming up. I, coming I have nothing, though. so I'm just waiting on you, David. So no, no Instagram. <laughs> there were no Instagram happening. models that approached me. <laughs> which, <laughs> is so for, I, which is a true hat. Yeah, I know. I, honestly, just given what I just given my experience walking around towns with you, such as in Charleston or Charlotte or wherever, I'm I would have thought that anywhere you go, the right. models right. are walking up to you. Right, right. And introduce Heidi just made the Heidi just made the most what, David? Come on. Skeptical face. <laughs> No, that or it's a migraine. I missed that. Heidi, when David said it's just like Tim, that like whenever we're in a big city, a model around towns and you were giving a skeptical look. No, I don't think she meant to. I don't know if she meant to. to. I was probably nodding along Mm. with that. Mm. I actually Mm. have been in towns with you when women have approached you. So actually, that's true. I'm, 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 I'm being serious. <laughs> this is, this is not an unusual hat. And it's not, does, I but it not could hapless. still be, it could be, sometimes it could be hapless though. Sometimes it could. Yeah, it could. It could be but ill-starred. I remember one day I was approached <laughs> while wearing some fashionable headgear that I bought at the haberdashery and. Haberdashery. Haps. haps Ensued by headgear. Do you mean like your 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 headgear for your braces? <laughs> right. You get that at the orthodontap. <laughs> yeah, the orth. <laughs> Tim Tim was wandering around downtown Atlanta in 1984 with his uh-huh. uh, with uh-huh. his uh, headgear, and models were just flocking. Exactly. Like salmon of Capistrano to borrow the Dumb and Dumber line. <laughs> <laughs> Oh I somehow gosh. feel this is my gone. My day is so much better. This is somehow gone from. You're kind of like the Lynette Doyle of the group. Well done. Well so, done. So what does that mean about what's going to happen? I don't know. Midway through this episode. But... Some, at some point, every metaphor falls apart. But <laughs> we'll just see what point that is for the story. It at least holds on as a segue. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this episode is becoming hapless. We <laughs> are here to discuss... Truly, for those of you who stuck around this long, we are here to discuss Death on the Nile. And Tim, you you weren't here for the first episode. So we got to do a little bit of uh, remedial work with you here. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is your first time reading this book, right? First time. First time. Okay, so I want to start here. I think we got to give the people what they want. Yeah. It's, time, it's time for a, a, a Tim... Tim prediction, a Tim prophecy. Yeah, it's predictions. It's prediction time. A Tim prophecy. (laughs) Predict him. And uh, you now know, you're two-thirds of the way through this book. Yeah. You know who is dead. You know that the jewels have been placed on the table. David, did you guys know that Lynette Ridgway, um, nay Ridgway, was dead like from the opening sentence of the book? Well, yeah. the back of the book says the tranquility of a cruise along the Nile was shattered by the discovery that Lynette Widgeway had been shot through the head. Okay. okay. <laughs> but I'm just, sometimes uh, yes. I don't read the blurbs, but you knew. 
she was a goner, you see right? It coming a mile yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. And okay. Christie's yeah. not trying to hide that. I don't think. No. I don't think it so. is interesting. Well, we'll talk about this. Okay. So let's let's do a t- uh, a predict him, and we have been given the beginning of the investigation. Poirot and Race have begun gathering facts. They've even done a summary for us. Right about halfway through the book, they dropped a summary into mm-hmm. the proceedings to help us get a, get bearings on what has been done so far. I, you know, good bit of a you know helpful there by Dame Dame Agatha Christie to just. Drop us a little summary midway through. But Tim, knowing what you know from that summary and your own keen sense of observation and your prophetic powers, Tim, who do you believe killed Lynette Doyle? Ridgeway Doyle. Okay. Let's, Let's talk through it. Let's work through this a little. Okay. But you have to use a Belgian accent. I can't do a Belgian accent. Okay, I. Okay, let's start with the red herring. The most obvious red herring is Jackie Belfort. She's so clearly not the murderer because she, everything about her says she should be the murderer. We know we have enough information that she is not the murderer. So that's our number one red herring. It seems to me like a crime writer as sophisticated as Agatha Christie might have in this case a second red herring. That second red herring, there are, that second red herring for me is Simon Doyle because he seems like I don't trust him. All right. Mm-hmm. I don't trust him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's willing to drop Jackie. And I think that even before he was involved with Jackie, I have a feeling he was like angling for somebody better. That's my hunch. We don't, you just don't trust him in the backstory. I just don't trust him. Right. Um, So he, but he is also so obviously um, kind of sinister and hungry for money that he seems too obvious a candidate to be a murderer. So I think Mm. he's the second red herring. And now it seems to me like, Everybody else is basically vying for the place for third place. And whoever finishes in third place actually ends up being in first place. They're the murderer. I'm really skeptical of Andrew Pennington. He just looks so, I don't know. I don't trust that guy either. We're supposed to, who's the communist? Um, oh, uh, wait, oh, what is, I've got him written down. Yeah. Uh, Ferguson. Ferguson. It's Ferguson. Ferguson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ferguson, I think there's no way. I, I don't understand why he would. He's just detestable. He's just so un, he's like seemly and unappealing. And I feel like Agatha Christie is enough of a traditionalist that she's just like all the other traditionalists are going to be like, ooh, communists. They murder people. They murder capitalists like Lynette. He's a threat. I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, and so the other, I'm going to reveal who I think it actually is. The other, um, I was paying really close attention when the lawyer wanted Lynette to sign those papers, and she started reading them very closely. And the lawyer was like, no, we can do this later. 
Let's not. You don't need to complete this because, you know, she's paying attention. She's reading. I think the lawyer is up to something. Okay. All that being said, I actually think it's the second red herring. I actually think it's Simon Doyle. And I think that he is double crossing both Lynette and Jackie. And he was willing to take a bullet for it. Mm. So he's trying to draw out the rage of Jackie to lead us off the scent. I think, no, I think that he's in it with Jackie. Okay. Jackie, shoot me, but not anywhere fatally. But I think that he's going to try to kind of like, he's the one who's trying to set her up to take the fall. He gets all the money. Hmm. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So that's I'm reading your faces and I'm not seeing official. That's the official Macintosh line. We're not going to give it away one way or the other. What do you want us to do? Well, the the sleuth nod but say no or poker face, pop, pop, poker face. face. It's not just you, Tim. There's people who are listening who are who are parsing out their reading. I mean, there's like three of them, but still. I think there's four and a half. Four and a half, four and a half people. Who's the half? A um a young child sitting in the back seat of (laughs) is half a person of Jesse Brown. No, a full person, but in our like podcast, whatever for for our statistic. For our statistics. Or maybe it's an average. It's an average. (laughs) (laughs) There's three in one family and five in the other or something. I don't know. The third four, you know, even that doesn't work. Math is hard. Okay. So, okay. So you think that it's Simon and Jackie mm-hmm. in the library mm-hmm. with the lead With pipe. the revolver. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Interesting. If we're going to file that one away, the, the, the predict him. I, you know, as, soon as, I, as soon as I say it, I'm like, I don't know that Jackie actually has like the savvy to pull that off. Cause I kind of believe her rage. Mm. Her rage is believable to me. I think she's genuinely pissed off at Simon. So if Simon is going to pull a double, double cross, he has the, everything relies on Jackie, not shooting to kill. Mm. So he has to trust her not to. Either not to be inept or not to be full of rage. Right. So, okay. One question that Heidi and I talked about last week was who our favorite characters are, like who we find most compelling. So for you, who, who do you find, who do you like the best or do not, not like, like as in, you know, this person would be my friend, but right. Most compelling as a character. Poirot is awesome. Right. But he's kind of like, yeah. Okay. Like the whole, the, the whole book the is built to like the, him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, mm, <laughs> I'm looking through my cast. My my cast. I I I don't know. I kind of like Tim Allerton a little bit, even though I find him kind of skeezy. I kind of like him. Mm-hmm. He probably also was walking around Aruba, getting approached by models. Probably. Um, I like name. Lynette. I like the deceased Lynette. She seems okay. a little bit. Okay. Yeah. What well, did you that was going to be Lynette? my, that was going to be a question that I had. Uh-huh. I want to talk about Lynette. Yeah. 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 This is kind of our last chance to do so. She's now gone, but she carries so much of the weight of the first half of the book. 
if you didn't know, like if the blurb on the back didn't say, or you didn't know it was a murder mystery, you could easily have been duped into thinking that it's this sort of, she's being followed. She's being haunted. Poirot is going to try to figure out who's bugging her. Yeah. Um, but then she dies and it becomes a murder mystery. So what do we think of her? Like, do, are we sad when she's gone? Like, does it, does her death carry the weight that it needs to for the book? How do you, how do you feel about Lynette Ridgway, Ridgway Doyle? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why this book is, uh, makes Agatha Christie, you know, the queen of crime is because the victim is they're all eyes are on her, but there's multiple uh, interpretations of her. Um, I don't think any woman is going to like Lynette Doyle that much. Heidi, how come? Because she's too perfect, which is directly alluded to in the book. She's like aspirational, like every yeah. uh, she's. And, and when I say too perfect, I want to be clear because I can already hear women over drinks arguing with me about this. Um, I she's not because, perfect. She's because they don't like her. So right, they're going to yeah. argue. Right. So um, she's aspirational, not in a moral sense, but in like a venal sense. Like there, she's beautiful. She's rich. She's smart. She's capable. Uh, she's, you know, every woman, she's kind of, she's kind of like the ideal woman, but without enough moral weight to her to make her like likable as a person, you know, like she has all the outside trappings. Um, so I, so there's, there's already multiple um, motives for her death of in all of the characters, which is interesting psychologically, right? Like you could have, you know, Andrew Pennington would have a valid motive, but it would be totally different from Jackie Bellafort, right? Like, and, and, but they're both valid um, and they're both enough to kill this woman who has no idea she is an enemy in the world and thinks that she's living the dream. Um, and that I think is a victory on Agatha Christie's part. But what's interesting is that all those motives come down to envy, mm. all of them, every one of them. And I think that's kind of the, that's, I think that's the, the, one of the geniuses of this particular story is like the, the question mark of like what, what does it mean? What does it cost you to be an object of envy in multiple from multiple perspectives? Mm. So, yeah, I think that she's a character that carries the weight, but not because you like her. Yeah. It's because you're envious of her. Yeah. Everybody We're wants what to... she's got. She's an object of desire in yeah. so many ways. Like, and from what she has to who she is, to her position, to her. Yeah. Her, her so, reputation. Yeah. yeah. And we talked talked last week about how it makes so much sense for the movie for Kenneth Branagh and his team to cast Gal Gadot, who is like mm -hmm. she played Wonder Woman, right? Like she's the kind of person who's going to be like oh. on the People Magazine sexiest woman of the world type things, right? She's got it's not just she's that, like, rich, she's beautiful, right. she's famous. She has it's not it's not status, just right? that like, she's like yeah. an actress who's beautiful. It's that she is like one of the most recognizable women in the world at this point. Just you know 10 year olds know who she is and 50 year olds know who she is right and it makes so much sense to cast her in that role uh 
because you, you have to have someone who for the audience, you have to, it's like a surrogate for the relationship with the audience. Like it takes you, you don't have to do all the character work, which is tough to do in an hour and 45 minute right. crime because the audience has a relationship with her. So like there's a subconscious, like a subtle subconscious bit of character work being done just by who you cast, which is one of those things that movies can pull off in a way that other art forms really can't. Like you can use the reputation of the person who you choose to create character depth mm-hmm. or relationship with the audience. Have you guys struggled to keep the characters distinct other than like maybe like the five, six main characters? I think all the men run together yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, other than like Paro and Doyle. Right. At least in terms of their names. Yeah. I made a cheat sheet in which I wrote down everyone's names and kind of like a brief blurb Look about Look at you. Them. That's usually stuff I do. You did I know. that. I'm learning I'm from so you. I'm so proud of you. I'm no, learning from you. Yeah. This is so great. And what did you put? Give us a give us a little well peek onto your cheat sheet. I'm finding that my cheat sheet is a little bit lackluster. Like Mr. Gaston Blondin, restaurant owner. I'm like, okay, sure. That's a, like that's who he is. But that isn't like, none of like <laughs> the, you didn't not need to put him on is. there. Yeah. It's not who he is, right? Um, <laughs> Fleetwood engineer on the Karnak. Uh, okay, great. Well, we need, it's like when you're doing sleuth work, you need, as Perot has instructed us, you guys, you need like to look inside. It needs to be in like facts about their interior life. Right now, (laughs) I love everything you're saying. Well, the thing is, I was, I was thinking about how there's two different kinds of sleuth work that happens when you read the best crime novels, right? The ones where you, like that we really trust to be great. Yeah. On the one hand, you've got the sleuth work that the detective is doing. So there's Poirot's sleuth work and the novel has to set up his work. So it has to set up the clues to be there. You know, there's been all kinds of essays and books written about what makes a great detective novel, but the elements have to be there for the detective to sleuth out the sleuthable sleuthings. Um, but um, then you also have the clues for the reader to do their own stuff aside from what the detective is telling them. Yeah. And that's where a mediocre detective novel that just sort of like lays it all out for you is like, this is sets it apart from that because the reader, the the author creates a process or or the fun or the work for the reader to do too. So I was thinking about how usually that's reading between the lines, right? Like the, the detective, is doing the not reading between the lines. I mean, they're reading between the lines that they see, but then they're telling you what they see. And so for the reader, it's not between the lines, it's right out there. But then as readers, we can look at the way a character acts, right? Or the way they carry themselves or something subtle. Like I was, there was something about Fanthorpe I kept thinking about in the way that she was presenting him. That It seemed like she was trying to draw our eyes to something unusual about mm, him. Mm. And as soon as in a crime novel, you're drawn to something unusual, they become a suspect, even yes. if it's subconsciously for the reader. Right. And the subconscious is what makes a mystery fun, right? Because the clues that are obvious, that becomes a puzzle. But all the tone and the mood and the really fun stuff that keeps you turning all the pages is totally. in the subtle, the subtle subconscious stuff that you don't exactly know how it's working and what right. you're looking for and all that. 
And I think this is, she's really good at that. Okay. I have a question at this point in the novel, two thirds through does Poirot know who did it. And he's just like now backtracking to kind of confirm what he's already pretty strongly convinced of. How many Poirot mysteries have you read? Are you, this is number two. It's not a trick question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He will usually tell you that in the reveal. Wait, hold on. What? He'll tell you you when he knew. Yeah. You've only read two. Yeah, I know. I I'm, I'm trying to be cool too. I feel like this podcast has become the persecute Tim podcast. (laughs) Well, I mean, but sometimes you you deserve it. First, you deny that models approach me on the street. Okay. I know that David made this statement. You made a face, Heidi. A face. Right? Speaking of subconscious. I can neither confirm... Nor, nor deny. deny the faces I might have at any given time could be related. She doesn't to even know. She doesn't even know the faces yep. that she makes. And then after you make that, it's face, like my children. After you make that face, you said, and I quote, "How many Poirot novels have you even read?" Even I did not say even. That <laughs> How many have you changes even the read? Well, she didn't like, say even, but I'm kind of saying you've only read two. Yeah. So this one and Murder on the Orient Express? Yeah. Really? Yes. Okay, this might actually, I might not even try to hide (laughs) this becoming a persecute Tim. No, no, no. I'm not even mad. I'm just, I'm impressed (laughs) that that you've avoided it for so long. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think you should, you should probably read more. (laughs) So. <laughs> like just full stop you should just read more Period. Oh, no, are, are you not a are you do you not like mysteries in general or do generally you just not, speaking i don't I, would you I, not like or do you not prioritize i don't prioritize uh, that's a good question i don't prioritize i will so tell you're you, a serious reader right i love i'm reading 900 page tomes on catherine the great the catherine the, the great economics of 17th century the russian farming <laughs> how, many, how many tolstoys have you even read <laughs> <laughs> okay look look dostoevsky crime and punishment is it's a murder mystery in which you know who committed the murder. You don't know why he did it's it. It's true. We did talk about this on the Patreon. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. The, another one of my favorite books, also I think qualifies as a murder mystery, The Secret History by Donna Tartt. You know mm-hmm. in the first whatever chapter who did it. And you want to know why they did it. I, for some reason, I find that mode very appealing. Yeah, because okay, it's less the story. So of a should we just tell you that Poirot did this one? Exactly, yeah. exactly, Heidi. Okay. So, yeah. okay, is this the way that Poirot? Like, does he always know fairly early on who did it? I don't. No, not always. Not always. But a lot of what he I mean, so much, so much of what's compelling about an Agatha Christie is is when there's a reveal, there's always a twist. There's always a surprise. There's whether or not it's Poirot's 
you know, sleuthing, something will come out and they'll say, I knew at this point, but I, I didn't know how this was accomplished in order to do that. You know, I was stumped by the closed door or the light switch or, you know, like, yeah. and then something will fall into place that he'll be able to handle, you know, all of, uh, all yeah, of the details. There's no questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the but, DA has to make a case. Right. Yeah. And he won't speak until he's sure. And, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. But, it's also, I think, about the experience of the reader. Mm-hmm. So, like, Poirot is your guide. Like, that's why halfway through the book, he summarizes in this mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. And so then it's giving us our bearings to start thinking, okay, this is what we know so far. Yeah. But just what we know actually true. And, like, <clears throat> how is that going to, yeah. How does that impact this, this other thing? So, you know, it, it is kind of a brain teaser in some ways. Yeah. But and I don't think of all of them are like that. Even. Right. Well, and some of her, her novels have this like wide range, like, uh, you know, some of them are about the puzzle. Some of them are about the psychology. Some of them are about kind of an exploration of a bigger question, like justice or love or, you know, and uh, some don't have a detective at all. Right. And some are like more adventure stories and there's just, there's so many of them. And she has a, a capacity for a wide, wide range. I would say for her, I'm not sure where I would put this one. Like the puzzle's pretty good, but there are others that are mm-hmm. just in terms of the actual clue making sleuthing. There's some that are, are a little bit more complex um, and have that like, you know, by the time the reveal is, it just feels like this, that. Uh, the multiple threads having been thrown out come together in this like very satisfying, surprising, complex puzzle kind of way. And I think there are others of hers that 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 meet that criteria a little more than this one. Mm. This one is, um, I think, more of a psychological study. Um, so I, it's just a, but all of them have the elements of each, you know. So you know, um, the Chrissy's birthday was just. This week, I think. Yeah. Oh, really? Um, and so I went back and looked at the thing that, you know, Heidi, you and me and Sean Johnson and Ian and Emily Andrews for former, we put together a list. I'm like, I guess it was the hundredth anniversary of her birthday back in 2000. We posted this in 2020, um, <clears throat> 130th anniversary of her birthday. And we did a top 20 of her novels and we collectively, you know, we had a process for this, but we had, and then there were none first, which doesn't have a detective it doesn't have Poro or Marple. Oh, really? And um, and then and then like it like like this one. It's like a psycho, There's a psychological thriller element to it that I think her best her best books have. Um, but back to this book, Heidi, did you say everything you wanted to say about Lynette? I Tim? did. Yeah. Okay. So Tim, did you want to talk about Lynette? Like, were you sad? I mean, you may have, you said you saw it coming, but were you like, you would come to care about this person or no, something? No, I, I don't know. I feel like she was kind of, were you happy? I wasn't happy. I think I just, I knew she was gone. I choose a goner seriously from the first sentence when they describe, you know, like how, when Christy describes how great she is, I'm like, oh yeah, she's dead. She's dead. It's just a matter of time. She's Um, either going to do the killing or she's dead. Right. And I, she was kind of like maybe morally vacant, 
more than she was. I mean, Heidi kind of alluded to this. She, she's everything that you would kind of want to possess, but very little in terms of what you would admire. So this far we're, so, so given what you're saying here, we're this far into the book. It seems like for so much of the first, say at least third of the book up to the first half, um, she is like carrying a lot of the dramatic weight Mm. of the book, but she's dead. So the book can't really be carried by her. Yeah. Poro doesn't really carry the books, like the psychological weight of the books. He's like solves a clue for us. So who is this book's real beating heart? Do you think like, who is the character or what is the, I don't know how, how you want to put it like that, that is driving the action. That's like driving the empathy and the pathos and keeping us reading besides just, this is a clue that I want to know the answer to, because like just wanting to know the answer to a clue, it's not that big of a deal. We can Wikipedia that. Right. So what yeah. keeps us reading the actual book? Like, you can't be think, Jackie. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. It's, it's Jackie and her, uh, her loss and her longing and her naked emotion, as it's called in the novel. Um, and that the sympathy that we have as readers with her, with her plight. Yeah. I love the, um, <clears throat> the little lecture from the Old Testament that Poirot gives I love Poirot. He's just the best. Right? Such a human, he's such a humanitarian. And I think, aren't we supposed to walk away from that? Having a lower view of Lynette, certainly of Simon, right? Mm -hmm. But I think when, when Lynette gets lectured by Poirot, like I was like, yeah, Lynette, come on. It's not just like you have your pick. Jackie did not have her pick of men. You have your pick of men and you went to your best friend and you took her guy. Like, come on, come on. And what, what, you know, Lynette's reply, you know, the kind of the heart chooses what the heart wants or something like that. You're like, well, okay, right. But I think that we're deliberately supposed to think less of Lynette and maybe the pang of her loss doesn't really hurt so much. What really hurts is Jackie's loss. And what is that setting us up for? It's interesting that we are like, do like we, it, we almost feel in opposition to Lynette. Mm. when she dies like normally you'd have this character who <clears throat> whoever dies you'd either die off stage at the beginning you barely know about them they're like the lord of the manor or something but we spent half the book with this character and then we don't like them and then she dies and you in like then we're supposed to figure out how to care about it i just i think it's interesting that I don't, christy asks yeah. us of that i don't know if she i think we are to go back to your earlier question then i think we are supposed to not like Lynette. I think we're, I think she's intended to create a dissonance in the reader of this is, she has everything. And yet, except for substance, except for 
humanity except for compassion. Like she has, she has everything, but she is nothing. Right. Mm. And that like, she's so empty as a, Mm. as a person. And so I don't think we're supposed to feel like she deserves it because she's so oblivious. There are other less sympathetic murder victims in the Christie canon um, Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, even murder on the Orient Express, right? He's probably Ratchet's probably the least sympathetic, yeah. like the most yeah. wicked. He's like a genuinely people. bad guy. Yes, and there's a couple others like that. Um, but Lynette is not. She's not. She's not cruel or heartless, but she's she's careless because she's so fortunate. Because she's so you know happed, I guess. <laughs> so, um, um, Good callback. Yes. And that, that has made her careless and, and which as, and this is a big theme in Christie's work, carelessness does as much damage as cruelty. That's a huge Mm -hmm. theme in Agatha Christie's canon Mm. that to be like, to be a careless person does an immense amount of damage and maybe even more. Then cruelty, because cruelty is at least targeted towards something. And it usually there's an element of, of, of deservedness, at least, you know, to revenge. But with carelessness, you just go out into the world and wreak havoc and you have no idea. And that's what Lynette Doyle is doing. And, but Jackie has something like she has this capacity to love that is now thwarted and, what I, I really, you know, um, Agatha Christie, whenever she gets in these like kind of like deep psychological modes in her stories, which I, I really like that about her. That's what makes her my favorite mystery writer um, is that she um, that she does this kind of thing that's a little bit like Flannery O'Connor and Mystery and Manners. When Flannery O'Connor intentionally says there's this there's this veneer of manners that we have and we need it. It's what civilization is. But underneath that is the natural man, so to speak. Underneath that mm. is always this like surging tide of emotion that that then and and that's what O'Connor is interested in. And she does this in a totally different way than Agatha Christie. And as a craftsman, there's no competition. Like as, as an actual author, like the words on a page, Flannery O'Connor wins by a mile. But it's the same kind of um, exploration of the soul. Yeah. It's like underneath the manners, there is this mystery. And, and, and that is what makes people, that comes out and and that's what murder is like according to agatha christie that's what murder that's why it happens is because when people can no longer contain the mystery with the manners somebody dies and and so it becomes this this exploration of the natural man and and jackie is our natural man so to speak in terms of the phrase of that jackie's the one that is like um that is pure naked emotion the mask is off yes and Poirot has so much sympathy for that. Mm-hmm. And, and he becomes her defender um, and her mm-hmm. advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he can't stop, you know, that he can't, he can't necessarily protect her um, from Simon and Lynette's marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that yeah, he, he can't pathos. protect her emotionally or whatever. Yeah. That creates this pathos within the story. But he's the one who sees her. That's what I like about Perot is he sees people. He pays attention. He sees people and acts accordingly. Yeah, it's like this dissonance gets introduced. And then 
that leads to the disorder that leads to the murder. Right. And then it's up to Poirot along with us as the readers to, to restore the order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, a, there's a dissonance and a disorder. There's a dissonance that leads to a disorder that then the book is about that restoration. Right. And so we, as the readers are like longing for that. We feel the dissonance. Then the crime happens. And then we're participating in trying to get that cathartic reordering at the end. Right. You guys, there's this show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. Have you heard about Love on the Spectrum? No. I've heard, of, I've heard about it. It's a story. It's like multiple stories of um, younger people who are on the autism spectrum trying to find romance. And Galen turned me on to it. It is such a great show. And the reason that it's so great is for like the reason that you're describing Heidi, the way that we feel about Jackie. It's like her emotions are laid bare. She is, she no longer cares about kind of like remaining civil and like keeping up the manners. That's how these kids feel as they go on these dates. It is so intense because the way that you feel, you know, like when you were dating or maybe like the way that you still feel with your spouse, when you're frustrated or swept up in love, it's all laid completely bare in these dates. It's so intense that it's almost for me, it's almost unwatchable. It is so intense. And it made me really think like, Oh yeah. Worst I, episodes of the office where Michael Scott does something exactly. that's like so awkward. It's so awkward. It's just right. like, it makes you cringe. Like you want to shy yeah. away from it. You put back the manners, put on put the, manners. the manners, please. We must <laughs> yeah. have manners. The mystery is too much. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. I mean, it is. It's yeah. Well, and that's why like these stories being told in the context of this British sense of order is compelling and has made them last. You know, she's right. responding to and like helping like recreate this disorder in a world that is like all about order. Mm. It's right. like that the people like order is outlet. its defining characteristic practically. Yeah. <laughs> right. So to introduce the dissonance then becomes a pretty profound action. So, the, and, so there and, is an element of like satire of, of social satire mm-hmm. within Agatha Christie and a little bit of an indictment of that kind of repression that permeates yeah. British mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it seems like every era or, or sort of subgenre of mystery writing and crime writing has some version of this. Like there's a whole bunch of 1930s, 40s, 50s Los Angeles crime novels, Ross McDonald and John D. McDonald and those kind of guys. Um, that's like they're very they're very American. They're they're not like there's not really a lot of order to begin with. <laughs> and that's kind of the one of the points is like people are sc- scrambling to the crimes often happen because people are scrambling to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of what makes them psychologically deep. Usually the person who commits the crime, even if it's a crime of passion, is like um, from the streets of LA and, you know, or from the Valley or, you know, something like that. And, and they're not, 
occasionally, you know, like if they're in the big sleep, they're somewhat rich and their daughter gets swept up on something they shouldn't. And then the sister tries to rescue them and weird things happen. And the private detective has to go about solving it. But a lot of times it's just like an average person struggling to survive in early 20th century America, you know, mid 20th century America in like this burgeoning city where crime is on the rise and all that, as opposed to these British landed gentry, you know, uh, lords and ladies and crimes that happen in English estates and on golf courses and with vicars, <laughs> yeah. you know, <clears throat> and it seems like every genre has their own sort of part, part, particular, I guess, version of what we're talking about. And then that means that the detectives, the people who solve the crimes are their own fit that mode too. So, you know, you got like a Sam Spade, he's a little cynical. He's maybe a world war one vet. He's got like, he's like dark and you know, he wears a, he's, he's like kind of not trustworthy, but he's really good at his job. He smokes way too much. He's like, his eyebrows are not kempt. That's for sure. He doesn't speak very properly. Like everything is the Did opposite you just of Poirot. Did say his eyebrows are not kempt? <laughs> unkempt. His eyebrows are unkempt. I love that. That's great. I love that. So he's everything. You know, Poirot is the perfect detective for this, the right. order that he's yeah. trying to restore in that particular world. He's because punctilious in a he's way. He's punctilious. That, yeah. yeah. Bourgeois, Whereas, like, she always says. Yeah, he's exactly. Not a, yeah. He's, she calls him bourgeois. He, Yes. Oh, really? He's a bougie detective trying to restore a bougie cult order to a bougie culture. Do you, yeah. Was that that word now is so for me associated with the juxtaposition with the proletariat and the kind it of like, is in Christie too. Oh, is yeah. it really? Yeah, she kind of like mocks him even a little bit. She gives him this moral center, but he's like she's a funny lady, and she she mocks him a little bit for being bourgeois, but he's an outsider coming into the inside of a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he occupies a really interesting space socially in her, in her, in her books. But yeah. I like that. Well, it's hard to talk too much more without I know. talking about the I ending. Know. So Tim, when you, you actually finished the book and then made your prediction or. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> No, of course not. That wait, does that mean I got it right? No, I'm just throwing I'm just throwing uh, red herrings at you. <laughs> I don't feel I obviously don't feel super strongly about my um second red herring is the true murderer theory because I'm like so what's the deal with the huge boulder that kind of like topples and almost falls on Lynette? Like how do you explain And we know Jackie that? didn't do that. We know that Jackie didn't do that. So, okay, can I just like throw out my second theory is that it has something to do with her estate and her lawyers. Great, Tim. That's really helpful. Like, that's nice and broad, right? You want to just keep listing people as possible? Yeah, by the time I'll let, I can go back in the last episode and be like, see, I was right. I suspected them the whole time. <laughs> There's well, also all these, all these other like sub-mysteries to the book, right? Like there, what's up with... Rosalie Otterburn and what's mm-hmm. like all these like interesting kind of and who is Fanthrop um, and Mrs. Bowers and her 
the pearls and the pearls and you know which one and cornelia which one is she which man is she gonna pick and yeah what's up with ferguson like there's all these little sub mysteries that and we're not sure which of those sub mysteries has something to do with lynette or is a red herring or has some something else that's coming within the story yeah. so and i think that you know as you pointed out david there's kind of there's all of those help keep the reader interested and guessing and trying to solve the puzzle and we don't know what's a clue and what isn't a clue and um you know no one ever predicts when they do these predictions that it's going to be that it's the old lady that can barely move Mm, or the spanish inquisition (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah the old lady who can't move she's a she's a stock character in agatha christie too and sometimes she's real and sometimes she's not so all right, Tim. All right, David. You're back from Aruba. Yep. Back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. You're going to finish your second Agatha Christie book. Hold on for the ride. Yep. See if we'll find out if you were right. Yep. How right you were. Is there a degree to which you were right? Yep. That's an interesting possibility. When it turns out it's Fan Thorpe and Pennington right. together. Or Ferguson. It is the communist after all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> up with the proletariat down with the bourgeoisie exactly exactly it's, all, it, it's right there in front of us all along right there in front of us all along all right well heidi anything you want to add before we uh no nope. before we go all right well tim thanks for joining us again thanks for actually coming to the podcast we appreciate you uh Hush. making a token appearance <laughs> yeah i came and i took my bludgeoning from you guys well, I mean, you're not going to show up. You're going to get bludgeoned every now and then. Your skin got thin over the last couple sure weeks. Did. You've been in a room. He's been in that sunshine. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, it's probably all the supermodels telling you how amazing you are. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, for Tim McIntosh and his supermodels, and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>